Well, this is uh, number two in the series on covenant. And just a just a recap for a second on why we're doing this. Like we believe that covenant, the idea. Um, is um, intrinsic to the nature of God himself. And the Bible is structured along the lines of covenant. You have your old covenant and new covenant. And, and God re- um, relates to us as his people on the basis of covenant. So it's absolutely important for us to get our head and our minds and our heart around this idea of covenant. Which brings us to the one that we're going to look at this morning in Genesis chapter 8 and 9. It's the second one. Now, by way of um, introduction... Um, we happen to live in a, in a culture, and you know this because you live in California, um, that we live in a very uh, environmentally sensitive time, right? And you're experiencing those changes very subtly as, you know, now you have to bring your own grocery bags to Raley's or to, to Safeway. Um, for the first time a couple months ago, I actually drank from my first uh, paper straw. <laughs> Done that? It's a paper straw, and it's, it's a weird sensation. You're used to plastic straws, and this paper straw, it sticks to your lips, and it makes you feel like you're sucking on a garbage bag. It just really does. Um, I don't really appreciate it, but garbage bag. I should say it's a grocery bag. That's a little better for you. Um, and those are just the little subtle changes that, you know, that we see taking place because we live in a very green culture. Um, with a lot of fears, a lot of latent fears that people have, and, and the media doesn't do us any any, any good in kind of um, uh, intensifying those fears. Fears about uh, global warming. Hear about that all the time. Uh, melting polar ice caps or glaciers and the rising of the seas. Now, this morning I'm not here to argue the merits of the arguments either side. But I do want to point out that um, much of the debate, much of the discussion, and much of the fear is faithless is faithless. Now, let me say, I, I, like you, I think we could all agree that, that stewarding God's creation is, 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 is important. Like, we really should care for the environment. We should care for creation. But we have a really, like, a deeper motivation as to why we do that, right? Because we believe that there is a beautiful, awesome, powerful creator who created it all, and everything in creation is his masterpiece, and therefore, we treat it with respect. We steward it because it's his, that is ultimately, our, our, from a Christian's perspective, our, our, our motive. It's like, this is God's. These are God's plants. These are God's trees. These are God's animals. Um, but at the same time, we have to rest in the fact that this earth has been in existence and has been home to the animals and to humanity for thousands of years. And we have every reason to believe that it will continue to be our home and the home of plants and animals, not because of human control, manipulation, or technology, though. Rather, we can be confident in the continuation, in the preservation of the world, of creation, because God has promised it would be preserved. That is, because of covenant. In particular, a covenant made with Noah thousands of years ago where God promised that he was no longer, he's never gonna, gonna, again going to wipe out the earth by a flood. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, is this covenant that he made with Noah. Some call it the Noahic, as in Noah with an I-C at the end, Noahic covenant, or the covenant of preservation. Before we get there, though, it's, I think it's important for us to kind of um, f- follow the narrative to it, because I think we'll understand better how the Noahic covenant 
um, the covenant of preservation relates to Christ um, as a result. So if you could, we just back up to where we kind of left off last week. We looked at the covenant with Adam or the covenant of works or the covenant of creation where God covenanted with, with Adam, and of course Adam blew it, Adam and Eve blew it, and, um, and they were kicked out of the garden, sin, nakedness, um, guilt, and ultimately death and exile um, were the result, because they just blew the covenant, right? And that covenant stands as the, like the, like the, really the backdrop to the whole rest of the Bible story and makes sense of both the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, but in the middle of that broken covenant, when everything's coming apart and the wheels are coming off the bus, um, there was this gleam of hope. There was this promise. And I want to take you back to that promise um, because it's, I think it's important to see the, the, how, how it unfolds. That promise, of course, was God speaking to the devil who seduced the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is, as summed up last week, there, he's saying there's going to be a war. Am, am, enmity, animosity, um, antagonism between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the, of the, of the woman. Now, I think the offspring of the serpent, or not speaking literally there, but rather figuratively, of those who um, surrender to, submit to, or align with evil and the devil. The offspring of the woman are those who surrender to, align themselves with, and trust in, in God. Those are like the, the two offspring. But eventually, he says, there is going to be a he, very specific, he, singular, he will bruise your head. That is a fatal mortal blow. Someone's coming in human history who's going to destroy the devil. That was, and of course, this last week, that's, that's pointing directly to um, Jesus, who um, dealt a death blow to the devil when he died on the cross, and one day will complete what he started when he comes again and just judges the world. So speaking of him, but until we get there, until he comes again and makes everything complete, uh, it's going to be a war. It's going to be a war. And like right out of the get-go, when you're reading Genesis, and if you're not alert to it, you don't see what's happening. It's like chapter 4, right after this, the very next chapter, like the offspring of Adam and Eve, you have two very different brothers. You have Cain and you have Abel. Abel is a man of faith and he is therefore counted as righteous and he offers an offering to the Lord that the Lord finds pleasing. Cain, on the other hand, is not a man of faith. He offers an offering and is rejected by the Lord. And as a result, he rises up in envy and he slays his brother. Right there you have enmity between, if you will, an evil brother and a believing brother. Now, interestingly enough, as the story unfolds, there are two genealogies that are set side by side. Genealogy, you know, so-and-so begets so-and-so begot so-and-so. You have the line of Cain, the brother who, who murdered, and you have the line of Seth, kind of Abel's replacement. End of chapter 4, you have this cursed line. Cain was said to be cursed. And his line is known, that is his family tree going down, um, is notorious for its violence. I think the offspring of the serpent, that is those who align themselves with evil. Then you have chapter 5 where there's another genealogy given, the, the, the genealogy of Seth. And it says that they called on the name of the Lord. So it's really the unfolding of this verse. 
these two lines that are at war with one another. You're either on the side of evil and darkness or you're on the side of light and, and, the, and the Lord. The problem is in chapter 5, they begin to intermarry. That is the evil line and, or the cursed line and the blessed line. And if you want to derail somebody from their allegiance to the Lord, um, intermarriage is a way of doing it. You read, most of you probably know your Old Testament history, but um, it was a perennial attack from the evil one to cause intermarriage and therefore a seduction to idolatry. So here you have this intermarrying between the lines, and as a result, it seems as if the, the line has become completely corrupt. Completely corrupt. As if someone was trying to derail the last part of verse 15. He's not going to come. I'm going to contaminate the line. That's chapter 5 and 6. And things get so bad in chapter 6 that everything that the Lord sees is corrupt, with the exception of, of one thing. Now, there may have been more things that were good. We're just not given insight into that. The Lord looks and he says, uh, he sees the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I just slow down. It's great. The evil was great. The wickedness was great. Every intention, thoughts of the heart, evil continually. Like there's no bright spots. This is like the absolute worst news ever, constantly. And then the last part, verse, verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Human history has not seen this kind of universal devolution since. The sense is it was so bad, um, so dark, so violent, so vile, that God actually had to put an end to the world. The very first and um, sweeping universal judgment. Now, let me pause here for a second just to uh, consider something. You know, we live in, in a Western society where there, we, we, things are more or less stable. You know, we live under the rule of law and we have law enforcement takes care of the bad guys. And, you know, we have structures to our society like stop signs and stoplights. And most of the time, people stop at the stop signs and you wait till it turns green to go most of the time. And it gives the impression, living in a relatively stable society, that people are basically good, but there are some bad apples out there. That's kind of where people are today. Most people, I think, at least that I meet. I had a conversation just with a lady the other day. It says, I believe people are basically good. I, I would venture to say that someone who grew up in the violent town or city of Mogadishu would say different. Or someone who lived through the genocide of Rwanda in the 90s. Or someone who witnessed the enlightened and technologically advanced Germany of the early part of the 20th century, we look at those as anomalies. Like, pfft, it's not going to happen again. It's like, those really are not anomalies. That's, that's what's latent in the human heart. And the idea is that civilization can go that direction and become like as close to pure evil as you can get. There is something monstrous in here. 
And it comes out in pockets. I think someday it will come out again. But this was a dark moment in human history, and it got so bad. You know the story. Like, God turns their planet, turns our home into a watery grave. Kills everything he loved. With the exception of Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And after he tells them to build this ship, and that's the part we remember, right? Sunday school, right? And you're singing the song, God told Noah to build him. And it's like, that was the wrath of God. Like, this dark moment in history where this ship becomes like a floating zoo that saves the land animals. I mean, it's a little microcosm of creation. And, of course, they get on the other side, and, and Noah and the animals start creation over again. Like, God had to reboot creation. Reboot creation through this man described as someone who is righteous, blameless in his generation. He's the only one mentioned and in his time, in his generation, that walks with God. I suspect maybe, and this is a matter of speculation, but I suspect maybe he inherited his faith from his great-grandfather Enoch, who walked with God. Well, we don't know. Whatever it is, here's a man of faith. God tells him to build a ship. He builds a ship. The animals get on the ship. And on the other side of the flood, he starts creation over again. One might say that, that Noah is a, like a kind of an atom, Right? In fact, there are so many parallels between Adam and Noah that you can't escape the realization that he's, he, he's saying Noah's kind of a new Adam, right? Think about the parallels for a second. Both Adam and Noah stand at the head of the human race. We're all related to him. <laughs> you go all the way back, we're all sons and daughters of Noah, just as we are Adam. So they stand at the head of two different races. Both men are blessed by God. Both men are given the same mandate to multiply and fill the earth. Both men have three sons, one of which is cursed. In Adam's case, it was Cain. In Noah's case, it was Canaan. Both men fail. Adam by eating and Noah by drinking. And both men realize that they are naked in their guilt. That is to say, Noah's a kind of, of Adam. He begins the human race over again. And as such, God comes to Noah after the flood, and he establishes this covenant of preservation. This covenant of preservation. But it's not like other covenants, which makes it hard to teach on. They, they say Noah's like the, the, the underemphasized covenant, and I, I get why. It's harder to make sense of. But one of the things that distinguishes it is that the recipients of this covenant are not simply human. But look, I mean, with repetition, the recipients of God's covenant in chapter 9 are every living thing, right? I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring. That's human, so humanity from here on out. Verse 10, and with every living creature that is with you. And just so we're clear, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. Skip down to verse 12. Every living creature, all future generations, it's going to endure. And then the very end, a covenant between me and the earth itself. 
It couldn't be more clear or more repetitive or more emphatic. Like the recipients of this covenant of Noah is everyone for all time. Everyone for all time. By the way, I don't know that I've ever really stopped to think that when, like, when, you, when you see a, a horse, like great, 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 great grandfather horse was on the ark. Like, you're, you're looking at something to be amazed at. And not, not just a horse, but, I mean, everything. Like, crickets and bees and ants. They can't survive in water. And I do believe it was a global flood. Like, somehow, like, all of that goes back to that moment where he started over again. It's just kind of, kind of makes things amazing, right, to me. It's an elephant. Wow, that's pretty cool. Goes back to Noah. We wouldn't have an elephant if it wasn't on the ship. Just kind of cool, you know. So the recipients, all future generations and everything living, and the earth itself, God is covenanting with. Now, so how are we supposed to think about this covenant? Like, God actually sets in motion certain initiatives associated with this covenant, certain initiatives that are intended to preserve the world. I'm going to end with why. Why would he want to preserve the world? Just because he's a humanitarian, or does he have other purposes? So these initiatives. Now, we could go deep into this um, chapter and, and say lots of things, but for sake of time, just draw out three. One thing he sets in motion is the fear of man and the animals. Um, the fear of you, he's talking Noah and humanity through Noah, and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps along the ground and all the fish of the sea. So God instills fear in animals of us. Now, I get it. There are certain animals that are domesticatable. Your Labrador, your beagle, your cat. They are domesticatable. Um, but left to themselves, have you ever tried to catch a feral cat? It's not a happy thing. A pack of uh, feral dogs? I wouldn't let my kids hang around with feral dogs. Like, in, 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 instinctively, they do fear us. Some can be tamed, others not. But the idea is he put fear in the animals. Now, why is that? Is that, as some have argued, to protect mankind? I mean, the sense of it is, right, this implies that prior to this, animals actually trusted and submitted to man's authority. Can you imagine, like, a hippo, like, coming to you and you just, you're good? You're not going to be afraid in the river with a hippo? <laughs> Alligators, you know? I mean, that's the sense of what it was like before. Is they weren't afraid of us. They were trusting and they were submissive to Adam's authority. I mean, God put him as king. Something changed in the heart of the animal kingdom. Fear. Why? Oh, and by the way, it seems to give the impression that God put fear into the animals because perhaps part of the violence of chapter 6 in the world was violence against an abuse and exploitation of creation or the animal kingdom. I'm convinced that God put this fear of man in animals not to protect man as much as to protect the animals. Um, I mean, why put fear in them if they're friendly? Bird, most birds that I know are not going to be a challenge to a man. 
but we certainly could be a challenge to birds. Right? Can, can you imagine? <laughs> All you hunters out there, you know, you don't have to stalk your prey. You just, if, if, if there wasn't a fear and you just held an apple and said, hey, Mr. Five Point or Six Point Buck, come on over and take my apple and would you mind standing still while I pull out my compound bow? Is that going to be a problem for you? If there was no fear, that'd be easy. Can you imagine fishing? And they're not afraid of you. They just walk, come up to your boat. You just stick out your net and you just scoop them up. I mean, I mean that's being a little facetious, but you get the idea. It's God put that fear in the animals of human beings, I think, to preserve them. They run from us. Why? Because a lot of us are dangerous. <laughs> right? Because of that monstrous thing in the human heart. Like, this actually helps to preserve this, this instinctive fear. Now, cool thing is, we're told at the end of time, when Jesus restores order to creation, the lion, the is going to lie with the what? The lamb. Like, so usually the lion kills and eats the lamb, and here they're just lying down together like they're pals. Or that humans will be able to play near a den of asps, poisonous snakes, without fear, and the snakes without fear of us. In other words, it's going to be reversed at some point when the human heart has been forever changed in the new creation. So that's one thing he sets in motion. This part associated with this covenant. To preserve. Two. He institutes what many call um, government. In particular, he mandates human retributive justice. As opposed to rehabilitative justice. That is to say, if you read this, he says, and for your lifeblood, and again, who are the recipients? Everything. He says, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. He's speaking to Noah and to humanity. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. So whoever kills a man, there's going to be a reckoning. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And then there's this quote. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Interesting. God here doesn't permit capital punishment for murder, but he mandates it. Like, whoa, you're telling me God's pro-capital punishment? Absolutely. From the very opening beginning. I mean, and interestingly enough, he puts... Justice in the hands of mankind, right? By man shall his blood be shed. He's saying if someone murders, and I think the Mosaic law would tell us this is first degree murder. Um, if a man who murders, his blood shall be taken by mankind. This is like, like the earliest form of the establishment of, of governing authority. Perhaps, just perhaps the Apostle Paul, when he was writing Romans 13, was reflecting on this. I don't know when he talked about all authority is God-ordained and that the government doesn't bear the sword, an instrument of death, in vain? Why? Well, there's an explicit and an implicit reason as to why this, this is to be taken so seriously. Explicitly, says God made man in his own image. There is a value distinction between the animals that God loves 
and human beings that are created in the image of him. And to take the life of an image bearer is a serious deal. Can you imagine if we had that kind of respect for human life? Like, I'm, I'm not going to even get near killing somebody. Or murdering, I should say. Murdering and killing aren't exactly the same thing. Um, because made in the image of God, there's a worthy value that God elevates so highly. So if you take that life, well, then you forfeit your life. That's the explicit reason at the end for God made man in his own image. But there's an implicit one. Like this follows after the, like the, like the, the chaos and the violence of, that, 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 that brought on the flood. In other words, this is to provide some level of prevention against this happening again. This kind of violence needs to be dealt with swiftly and justly. In other words, this, this is intended to help preserve humanity. That's, it's a preservative. So you have this fear of man and the animals, as I understand it. You have this strong statement about justice. And then there's a third, and it's at the heart of the covenant. That is, um, God makes... I'm going to call a unilateral, that is to say unconditional. He makes the promise on his own with no conditions to it to preserve the earth. So says, I will establish my covenant with you, and I just love the never again. He says it back at the end of chapter 8 too, so four times. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Never again, never again, never again. And by the way, the flood is simply returning the earth back to its former state in when spirit hovered over the darkness over the waters and there was nothing but death. Or should I say absence of life. Just returned it to its original state to drown it. He's saying that's never going to happen again. At least not by flood. It will be preserved. This is a solemn promise on God's part. The earth is mine. I am not going to destroy it by flood anymore. I am going to preserve it. Now, why? Let's, let's finish with this. Why commit, promise, set these initiatives in motion regarding animals and regarding uh, humanity and justice and so forth? Why, why, to what end? And this really brings us back to why I wanted to trace out Genesis 3.15 and the two lines the evil and the, the good, the godless and the godly. That is to preserve the earth until salvation is fully accomplished by the he that was promised back in 315. I mean, we saw in the unfolding story, it seemed like everything got derailed. Like the lines were blend, blended together and there was corruption. And wait, is God's promise of 315 going to come true? And it's like, wait, no, stop. Yes, it is. And part of this covenant is it lays the, uh, the, the, the groundwork for the world's going to continue on until my plans come to fruition. And my plan is to have my own son come, live the perfect life that we couldn't live, die the sacrificial death that we all deserve to rise again for resurrection and come back and make everything right. This provides the foundation of all God's other working. It's like him saying, listen, the football field is going to continue on until my game is done. You see, that's just the whole context is given um, 
foundation and confidence. That's, that's how it plays out. And only at the proper time will it be destroyed once again, not by flood, but by fire. And not by human beings, but by God himself. That ought to give us a little more faith and calm some of our fears that are the tides going to rise or should I say the water level going to rise and are people, the world going to go to a hell in a handbasket? Well, we certainly are in a moral bunch and certainly is going to get a lot worse as I read the book of Revelation and Thessalonians, but God's going to preserve it until such time as he brings judgment. So we can be confident in that. God's going to preserve the earth until the time comes when he recreates it. The second thing, second purpose, I think of this, and this is a subordinate purpose, but I think this covenant with Noah that was made with not just humans, but with the earth and animals and everything is, is it really reveals to us God's love for his creation. We tend to be man-centered in our thinking of God's love, and certainly um, God loves Jesus above all else. He's his perfect son. And because of his perfection, he now loves us with the same love that he loves his son because we have his righteousness. And we forget about the things that he created that he, that he loves, you know, the masterpieces of creation, plant life and tree life and animal life and the whole thing. Like this, this really re- does reveal God's heart, not just for humans, but for diverse creation. For his creation. You know, what? originally we, when we had planned our worship service, I wanted a text read from Psalm 36. Um, Psalm 36 has this statement in it. And we've made songs out of, the, of, of a couple of the verses of Psalm 36. But I noticed the, there's a phrase that's all, always missing in the songs. You know, it's like, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. And that's typically where we stop in our songs. But there's a last line. And it says, man and beast, you save. In a passage that talks about God's covenant, steadfast love, oh Lord, you realize the scope of his love does not end with humans. It includes his creation. It includes physical animal life, plant life. Plants are implied, says beasts. Right? And that, that, again, to me, it speaks to the future. Like, the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus, um, didn't just lay the foundation for our souls to be saved, but our bodies to be saved, the resurrection, and all of creation to be saved. Right? We tend to be docetic in our view. That's an old, like, Greek um, heresy of the second century where matter is evil and spirit is good. And what we really need to do is, is shed this skin and live in the spirit. And Christians kind of bought into that Gnostic, docetic view. And, and sometimes we still think that way. It's like, well, I just can't wait to get out of this wrecked up body and go to be with Jesus in my spirit in heaven. It's like... Ah, wait a second. God loves matter. He loves physical stuff. He made physical stuff. At the beginning, he made it and he said, this is awesome. It's, that's my interpretation of good. 
Which means, at the end of the day, he is going to recreate in a similar way that he did with Noah. As, as God destroyed the world by a flood and begun again through Noah, so the Lord will destroy the earth by fire, but he will renew it again on the other side, only this time there will be no sin, no corruption, no suspicion, no, no cancer, none of that stuff. That is his end goal, is to renew all creation. I mean, think about the parallel again. There's such a solidarity between man and creation, so that in Adam all die and all of earth and creation falls, and in the last Adam, in Christ Jesus, he restores and recreates all things. Isn't that the heart and the soul? And this, this brings hope to life for me. When Paul penned this, he's like, he didn't see everything coming to an end in the sense that it's thrown away, but actually released for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Like, it's, if you can almost picture it, trees and plants are going, we just can't wait. Eagerly waiting, excited, giraffes and hippos and armadillos, excited, right, waiting. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, that's us. When we rise, it rises too. That fills me with hope. And I, I think you get a glimpse of that in this covenant with Noah. Like God loves his creation. He loves it so much that it's part of the redeeming work of Christ. And that fills in a lot of the blanks for me. What is heaven going to be like? Is it going to be clouds and harps and cherubs and bouncing babies and diapers? That's the Greek conception. Or will we dance again? Will we hold hands physically with the people that we love? Will we make music together? Will we pick ripe fruit? Will we drink really, 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 really good coffee? I'm just saying. I'm hoping for that, just so you know. God made the coffee tree, coffee bean. Loves the coffee tree and the coffee bean. And this has absolutely nothing to do with my message. So all that to say, brothers and sisters, like this, there's so much in this covenant that God's like says, I am going to preserve my creation because I love it. And because I am going to, at the end of time, I am going to redeem it. And that's... That's our hope. That's where we're moving toward. And there won't be any war anymore between the two sides. There won't be darkness and light and ungodly and godly. It'll simply be the light of God's godly people in the presence of Christ. That's, that makes me hopeful. I hope it does you too. Lord God, I thank you for your, man, your love and the fact that you have given us words. You have given us covenant words. You have given us promises not because you had to or were forced to or coerced to, but because in your freedom to show mercy to whom you will show mercy and to love whom you will love, you decided to of your own free, gracious pleasure. And we thank you for that. I pray that you just expand our hearts and mind to see that the God who created in the beginning is the God who recreates in the end, and the God who preserves until that time. And I thank you. We praise you, Father, in Christ's name.
Amen.